enjoyed myself uh, this week, and I uh, appreciate Clay and his uh, vote of confidence to even give me the opportunity to come. And, uh, and I know, like I said, that was a risk for you guys to even listen to his suggestion of having me come. And uh, I, I've been super edified and encouraged by this week, and just from hearing you guys talk, I think it's been, I think it's been good for everybody. I think we can say, like David, it's been good to be here. Uh, and, uh, and I just, I pick at Clay a whole lot. I mean, a whole lot. And, and I actually have toned it back because I don't know how well you guys know him yet, but like if we were in Perry, there's, there's, no, there's no filter whatsoever. But I, I only do that because I, I absolutely thank the world of their family. And uh, I know I poke and I agitate and I frustrate and intentionally push boundaries sometimes, but it's because I absolutely thank the world. But I'll tell you, he, uh, part of the reason why I was successful in the work at Perry is because of my relationship with him and the church stuff that we would talk about and, and uh, things we would, uh, uh, we would push with one another about at our, our Thursday Old Mexico uh, uh, discussion session. But I, I really do thank the world of him, and, and I, I, I'd, be, I'd love to come back now that I've got another reason other than just his family. And uh, if you think I'm cool, man, my family's way cooler than I am. And uh, they'd have had a ball. I know that my wife and my kids would have had an absolute blast spending time with you guys this week. And so maybe we just need to do a do-over, and, uh, and we'll get the whole casa up here. And uh, if you're ever in Florida... Uh, you've always got a place to stay with me if any of you guys ever need that. Um, I want to study. I, this, is a, this is a new sermon for me. Usually that's kind of risky business. Usually when you do gospel meetings or revivals, you, you bring your, you know, your tried and true stuff. I'm, a, I'm taking a risk with this one. Uh, I've never preached it. I've taught it as a Bible class, but I, it's just it's intrigued me so much that it's something I just really uh, felt led to share with you guys uh, this week. I was asked to speak, or I had been asked to speak, on a youth series uh, in in, uh, Huntsville, Alabama this coming summer, and uh, it's me and two other speakers are going to speak to to several young people on this Young People's Weekend, and the the theme of the weekend is, I wish I had known. And so what we were asked as speakers to to present is, is present something that you wish someone would have explained to you when you were in your youth, or maybe late teens or early 20s, that would have really helped you and your spiritual development. So come up with something that you wish you would have known. That was pretty intriguing. And so I, I thought about it a lot, and I prayed about it a lot, and what I've settled on, and, and, and this sermon kind of got, was the, the birth child of that, is something I wish would have been explained to me in my, in my younger Christianity. I wish I had known that my salvation doesn't rest on my own two shoulders. Uh, something I've experienced growing up in the church uh, church in the Midwest, very conservative, uh, and I come from a very conservative background. I think I'm still conservative. Clay may disagree with that on some points, but most in general, uh, I still am. You know, I think something, if we're being honest, especially those of us who are raised in the church, there, there has been, I think, a pressure to be perfect. And, 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 and some of the reason we've done that, we, we've, we've battled against concepts like cheap grace, like you know, as long as, as long as your heart's right, it really doesn't matter how you live. And there, there, that's, a, that's a religious viewpoint that's out there that we understand is just not correct at all. Or, or, or maybe even a Calvinistic teaching of unconditional election that basically God just chooses you and, and you're automatically saved and there's nothing you can do to lose your salvation. And so in, in response to that and trying to teach the truth, we have stressed the importance of obedience. And, and I've heard a whole lot of sermons in my life, in my young life, about work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And, and passages like, 
Faith without works is dead. And we absolutely should stress the importance of obedience. Jesus himself said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. And so only a fool or someone that just doesn't know anything about Scripture would suggest that we can be faithful Christians and not listen to what Jesus said or obey Jesus or keep his word. The issue, though, at least for me, and I, I think others that I know have experienced that, is that sometimes there's been a lack of balance in that discussion. You know, I have a hard time calling to my mind many sermons from my youth that ever talked about the subject of grace. And I even look at my own sermons, and looking back in 16, 17 years of preaching, I've not talked about grace in a sermon very often, and when I did, it was usually to talk about what it was not. Um, you know, part of the work of a preacher is to motivate it's to call to action. It's to preach the word, to stimulate, to, to call people to repentance, to encourage them to greater service. And what I've realized is, is that when people are, are motivated by the proper biblical concepts, they'll work harder and they'll serve better. And where I'm kind of at in my faith and my Christianity is, is, is that I'm convinced that if people will see God and be overwhelmed and we'll see Jesus like we talked about, if we'll truly be revived again in our hearts, I'm convinced the law part and the rule part will take care of itself. But what I found in experiences and heard over and over and over that because we've not given the proper balance and that a lot of people that were raised in the church have given up. The pressure has, has beaten them down and even for the faithful who are still hanging in there, there's not a lot of joy in their relationship with God. There's a lot of somberness and humility, which is good, but, but there's not much relief. And again, I, I think it's predominantly, I've had an experience of pressure. And I, and I think we've missed a huge biblical point about who Jesus is. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Savior. He's the Savior. Jesus is the one who died for our salvation. Salvation is a gift. Now, it has to be received. But when's the last time you heard a lesson about salvation as a gift without explaining all the things we have to do to receive it? When's the last time you heard a sermon about grace that didn't spend at least a little time, if not most of the time, talking about what it's not? And so back to this motivation... When I feel that salvation is all on my own two shoulders, that's overwhelming. That is a lot of pressure. Because I know that I fail. Anybody else want to admit that? I know I am never going to measure up to be perfect as your Heavenly Father is. I know it. So what is the message of Scripture? What's the complete, total message of Scripture? Well, I want to emphasize it by using a story I've been, I think, reading wrong for a long time. And it's the story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And the way that I've always taught and the way I've always heard the story of David and Goliath taught is that we should inject ourselves into this story and we're David. And we need to face our giants. And so if we'll just go into our battles with faith in God, like David, even though you may not be big and you may not be powerful, with God on your side, you can defeat giants. That's what I've always heard about the story, right? Anybody else? Same thing? My whole life. Everything. Exactly that. 
It's the way I've always preached it. And then I started doing this Old Testament study. Very recently, an Old Testament survey class where we go through popular, very familiar, basically the Old Testament timeline, and, and it was something that just overwhelmed me. There's basically only two ways to read the Bible. It's either mostly about me, or it's mostly about Jesus. And I think I've read it for the most time, it's mostly about me. I've inserted myself into these stories, and I think that it's there. But I'm starting to see a whole lot more that it's the latter. That all of these Old Testament stories point to Jesus. Don't we teach that in Bible classes? Don't we say all of the Old Testament is doing what? Pointing us forward to the time of Jesus. And then we say all of the New Testament and all, all the way to our time, we're doing what? We're looking back to the time of Jesus. And so what I was doing in this study, here's how it progressed. You got the faith of Abraham. That's awesome. And then you get to the Israelites. You get to Joshua. And he brings them right up to Canaan. And you want to know why they win the battle against Canaan? Is it because of Joshua's awesome military strength? Or does the battle belong to the Lord? In fact, to reflect that, it's amazing. As soon as they defeat Jericho, they turn right around and they're sent in the camp and they can't even beat little old Ai. Right? The battle belongs to the Lord. And so then we progress to that. And as soon as Moses and Joshua are dead, you go to the period of the judges where everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And we studied Gideon as one of our stories. You remember the story of Gideon? And I don't think the story of Gideon, I don't think the point is, hey, I should look at Gideon and be like Gideon. The whole reason why Gideon is successful as a judge is because God gives him the victory. You remember what God has Gideon do? He has 10,000 soldiers. Verse 100,000 soldiers, and God says, no, you have too many, because if you win, you'll think you did it. Remember that? So he says, everybody that's scared, go home. And a bunch of them go home. And God says, nope, you still got too many, you'll think you did it. And they get them all the way down to 300 soldiers. And God says, okay, that's about right. And now you'll know the reason you win is why? Because of me. Then we moved on to we studied the story of Samson. And if there's ever an Old Testament character you're not supposed to study and say, I want to be like that guy, you don't want to be like Samson. And what God does is he works through Samson to deliver his people. In other words, God is the hero of the story. So we were tracking through this. We're tracking through this. I'm studying all these things. And then my next story after Samson, I was supposed to cover David and Goliath. And I came to this story, and I, you know, I've always read it. It's about me, it's about me, it's about me. Maybe, maybe I'm not the hero of the story. Maybe I'm not David. See, because if the story of David and Goliath is about me, then I've got to muster the courage and fight my own battles. I've got to conquer giants. And the problem is, is I'm not always really successful at doing that. But what if the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus? What if David is a foreshadowing of Jesus? And what I learned then from the story of David and Goliath is that Jesus has already defeated the giants for me. Is that not true? What's that some of the giants Jesus has defeated for us? Sin. Death. It's been overcome. Satan. 
has been defeated. Not because of me, but because of what Jesus Christ has done. And here's the thing. Until I see that Jesus has defeated the enemy, I'm not going to have the confidence to fight my own battles with ordinary giants like fear and doubt and sin and disappointment and failure and criticism. David killed the giant. Let Jesus slay the giant. Well, if that's God and that's Jesus, then... And I'm not the hero of my story. If I'm not David, well, then who am I, Dan? Well, there's a lot of, again, foreshadowing of David. I, I wish we had the time to go into all the parallels. Like, Jesus sits on whose throne? That's prophesied. Jesus is a king. He sits on David's throne. Jesus, we learned from Matthew 1 this morning, is from the line of David. He is the lineage of David. He's a king like David. And so if Jesus is David, then who am I? There's some other characters in this story. What is your picture from the story of David and Goliath of the Israelites on the hill? Right? I mean, you picture this scene. Goliath is no ordinary soldier, granted. I mean, he's nine feet tall, and you can go, go into the study of, of how heavy even the, the armor that he wore, like over 100 pounds, just the spearhead was 50 pounds. I mean, can you imagine swinging a 50-pound sledgehammer? Five is plenty enough for me. Right? Imagine that. And that's Goliath. He's huge. But who's on the other side of the valley? It's the army of Israel. And, and if you just do a quick survey of their study, I mean, you could go back to 1 Samuel 11 and verse 11, where this same army destroyed the Ammonites. And it says in 1 Samuel 11, verse 11, that there's not two of the Ammonites left standing together. This same army has destroyed the Ammonites. They're skilled. They're trained. The same army in chapter 15 routes the Amalekites. Destroys them. Routes them. Totally, utterly destroyed by the edge of the sword. Verse 8 of chapter 15. And who's the army of the Israelites being led by? King Saul. Who is described in scripture as a mighty man of valor. Who we're told... Saul was head and shoulders taller than any other Israelite in 1 Samuel 9, verse 1 and 2. Saul himself would have been an intimidating figure. But this story is not about our strength. Thank Gideon here. If it's too big or you're too you'll think you did it. This story is not about how awesome our strength is. If it was, why are they so scared? Why are they so unable to fight? All the men saw Goliath. And they looked at, look at chapter 17, verse, at the end of verse, uh, verse 23, that the Philistine would come up and he would speak these same words every day. Basically that, guys, we own you. Bring somebody out. March some weakling you got out here and let's fight. You win, I'll serve you. I win, you serve us. And in verse 24, 1 Samuel, when all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. They're scared to death. So if I'm not David, then who am I? I'm the Israelites on the hill. And if I look at this story through that lens, it's the same story, it's the same features, but this story hits me in a whole different way and in a lot more real and practical way. This story is telling us 
that the Israelites on their own cannot face Goliath. They can't do it. They need a champion. They're standing around and their leader has no idea what to do. They are defeated. And I, I get the sense that the Philistines know that they own them. And don't you know Goliath is walking out every day and be like, we own you guys. And we're just delaying the inevitable because you know we're going to crush you. And so when David goes out on their behalf, he's not even a full-grown man. He is a vulnerable boy who we're told Saul's armor won't even fit him. He basically marches. I, I want to know what's going through Saul's mind to send that boy out there to fight. What's, what's going through David's older brother's minds to send their little... He's going out as the sacrificial lamb. If Saul's too scared to go out there, I mean, I, gotta, I would just love to know what's going through their mind. But God uses all these apparent weaknesses to defeat the giant. And David becomes their champion and Israel's redeemer. Now here's what happens at the end. What happens after David slays the giant? What happens to the Israelites after David destroys the giant, they march into mop-up duty. <laughs> it's all of a sudden, we got a whole new level of confidence, right? Because when the Philistines see that Goliath has fallen, they flee, and all of a sudden now the Israelites, they pop up, and they're ready to finish off the rest of the enemy, and they take off chasing them, and they get to share in the victory. The Israelites get all the fruit of having fought the battle themselves. The story of David and Goliath is about the overwhelming power of God to defeat the enemies of God. It's not about who's the strongest physically. It's not about who's the most physically imposing. This story, just like every other story leading up to it, is all about God grants victory. The battle belongs to the Lord. And so there's some pretty cool applications when I start looking at this story through that lens. For example, let's look at that there's one representative fighting for everybody. Goliath's challenge in chapter 17. Look, if you would, at the end of verse 8. The very last sentence of verse 8 says, Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. Verse 9, if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we shall become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. So basically, rather than everybody fighting, you march your champion out. I'll march out as champion. Whoever wins the rest. Have you all ever seen the, is it the movie Troy? You know, it's what I think of with this movie. You know, when, when Brad Pitt's character comes out there and there's that, that mammoth guy. you got the two massive armies on both sides, but... Ain't none of them swinging a spear. It's basically champion versus champion. That is what I have in my mind when Jesus comes to planet Earth. Have you ever studied the birth story of Jesus from Revelation 12's perspective? That there's this imagery in Revelation chapter 12 verses 1 through 5. There's a pregnant woman about to give birth. She's crying out in labor pains. And there's this dragon that enters the scene who with the swipe of his tail can take away a third of the stars. And he's waiting to devour the baby. 
And that's all imagery talking about Jesus being born and say it's Jesus versus Satan going head to head. And I'm going to tell you every day in my life and every day in your life, Satan marches out and gives you the same challenge. If I beat you, you're mine. If I beat you, you're my slave. John 8 and verse 34 says, truly I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. What did we study in Ephesians 2, Thursday night, verses 1 through 3? We, are, we were all dead in our trespasses of sins. You sin, you're the slave to sin. That's, what's, that's the challenge that Satan offers. Keep your finger here, but you've got to hear Romans 6, verse 17 and 18. After talking about baptism at the beginning of Romans chapter 6, that we die with Christ... And we're buried. We die with Christ so we can live with Christ. And now we're, we're set free. Look at verses 17 and 18. It says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, this is where we get in. We're still bond servants, but... But we're set free from Satan's bondage to getting to be servants of Jesus Christ. Thanks to Jesus, this passage says, thanks to Jesus and what he did, I am no longer a slave to sin. And so when Satan marches out as the champion, I don't march out to fight him. Jesus already marched out for me to fight him. And thanks to what Jesus has done, I don't have to serve you, Satan. In fact, I can say to you, Satan, in the name of Jesus, you can get your tail out of here. Because I've got victory in Jesus Christ. And so when little tiny Goliaths march out, <laughs> I don't have to slay the giant. Jesus already did. I fight through him. Now there's another really cool parallel. In 1 Samuel 17, look at verse 41. I want to read through some of this story because there's one of the things that intrigues me is that young David, when, when, when Goliath comes out, he runs towards him, right? In verse 41, the Philistine came out. This is when David's finally coming out. And, he, and, and, and the Goliath's got a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine, verse 42, looks and sees David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy and handsome in appearance. It's like... You march this scrawny pretty boy out here to fight me, really? Does that not emphasize to you that it's not about our strength, that that's not the point of the story? So this little old tiny, handsome, good-looking guy, this fair-skinned child, and fellas, who, who are you, am I a dog that you march this guy out here? And then I love David's statement in verse 45. You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord. There's a whole lot of New Testament parallels. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. And so all the assembly... And so he said, you come to me, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. And God's going to give me this victory. And then he says at the end of verse 47, And all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear. Listen to it. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Even David is saying, I'm not the reason I'm going to win. God's the reason I'm going to win. 
And so then in verse 48, it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. I love that. I love that he runs towards him to find him. There's a Jesus parallel. In Matthew chapter 26, 45 and 46. In fact, if you want to turn there and read that for me just a second. Matthew 26. So if you don't want to turn there, we'll, we'll get Trey to read it. Matthew 26, 45 and 46. The picture is, is Jesus is agonizing in the garden. He is, he is literally to the point that sweat drops are coming out. His blood on his face and he's praying, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will. But I mean, he is agonizing. And he comes to his friends that we talked about and said, couldn't you guys even stay awake one hour? I am going through this emo just terrible, emotionally, just awful experience. But he talks to God. He prays to God. And in Matthew 26, listen to verses 45 and 46. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep, and take your rest later on. See that the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Here's what I love. Jesus is agonizing in the garden, knowing what he's about to experience. And he's literally, in, in his human flesh, asking God, God, if there's any other way other than crucifixion, let this cup pass. But not my will, thy will. And he prays to God, and after that prayer... He gets up, he wakes his disciples and says, Guys, the betrayer's coming. Come on, let's go meet him. You see David and Goliath there? Young David running to the enemy, running to the Philistine. Jesus, after he's gone to God in prayer, he says, All right, hey, Judas is coming. I'm ready to go meet him. Come on, Satan. Let's get let, let's let's let, let's get it done. <laughs> you know, what it do. <laughs> and after after David's victory. The result of these terrified Israelites. Again, you got a picture. I, I just I would love to have been a fly on the wall there. That, that another one of the parallels is that, that that Jesus was rejected by his own brethren, even his own family doesn't believe in him. You know what happens when David first shows up to the battle scene? You remember what his older brother says? You're just here, you're just here to see what happens. You're just Go home. You know, you just go home. You know, he's bringing food to him. Even his own brother. I just wonder as, as David marches out there. I, I just gotta. I just gotta imagine. You know, they're hiding out in their tents, and Saul's hiding out in their tents, and they hear. You know, David and Goliath start to have their exchange, and I just picture his brothers who formerly have said, "Hey, you're just here for all the wrong reasons." Imagine their reactions as that sling and that rock flies, and it sinks in the forehead of Goliath. And that giant of a man literally falls over. And then young David rushes in and takes that 50-pound spear and cuts Goliath's head off. Imagine how their courage rises. You know, maybe they're hiding out in their bunker, scared to death about man. And, and you know they're just saying, David is about to die. We are literally going to watch this poor little kid get mutilated. And it doesn't happen. And instead, you know, they, 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 they're cursed. Well, we know it. Look at verse 52 of chapter 17. But the, actually, the end of verse 51 says, When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, what do they do? They turn and run. 
And what did the men of Israel do in verse 52? Then the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Shaarim, even to the Gath and to Ekron. Then the sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. When, when that Goliath of a man falls over, you know what the Israelites do? I mean, what kind of... Maybe it's like stress relief, like, woo! You know, I mean, like, he's... And now, man, they're ready to fight. Because of what God did through David, the enemy army already knew it was defeated and runs away, and the army of Israel, with renewed courage, pursues them and defeats the enemy. So put David and Goliath in the Jesus lens. What does Jesus defeating Satan as your champion do to enhance your motivation? David defeats an enemy that nobody in Israel could. And what it did is it freed that army of Israel from their paralyzing fear and sense of powerlessness. And now they're ready to fight. Are you getting the picture? When I put all this pressure on myself that I've got to be the hero, that I've got to be the champion, that salvation is all about me. Instead, when I see I'm not supposed to be David, I'm not the hero, the battle doesn't belong to me, I'm not the one who slays the giants in my life, Jesus does. Jesus died on the cross, and by Jesus dying on the cross, he crushed Satan's head. You remember the prophecy? Oh, Satan, you may bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. And when Jesus did that, he set me free from the bondage and fear of sin. And so now I'm released from my paralyzing fear of not ever getting it right and not being able to measure up and not being perfect. And now I'm the Israelite with renewed courage. Now I'm ready to fight. Jesus gives us the victory. Don't we sing that song? Do you guys sing that song? Oh, victory in Jesus. The Apostle Paul said it this way. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. And so you know what our response should be to seeing Jesus to slay the enemy for us, defeat the giant? Soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on. You're not fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory. And I wish somebody would have told me that a whole lot sooner. It doesn't mean you can live however you want. It doesn't cheapen grace. It doesn't mean that I don't have to serve or obey or follow. But seeing God as the hero of my story takes the pressure off of me to be my own Savior. See that you have victory in Jesus Christ and then you arise and you join the fight knowing that your champion, your Savior, has gone on before you. And that makes a powerful difference in my life. It never was about me and selfish, foolish me to think that it ever was. It's victory in Jesus. So if you're here tonight and you don't, you haven't shared in that victory of Jesus. See, you know, eventually the scared Israelites got to get off the bunker and out of the bunker and off the hill and you got to get in the fight. And if you've been paralyzed with fear or maybe with lethargicness or whatever else or you're just, just 
letting the world just kind of dull you to the fact that we should be serving God, get in the fight. Soldier of Christ, arise and put your armor on and see there's souls to be won. There's sins to, to overcome in your own life. And you can do that thanks to Jesus Christ. You can be washed in His blood. Isn't that interesting? What sets us free from sin? We're washed in the blood. We're cleansed in that, 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 that figurative burial in, in the watery grave. Jesus sets us free. You want to be free? You want to be empowered to be able to go fight? You want this renewed passion to be able to go fight and win? Let Jesus be your champion. Come to Him now as we stand and while we sing. Softly and tenderly Jesus is calling, calling for